The Mind of Christ, Thomas Aquinas and the Church Fathers on Christ's Human Knowledge and Our Salvation. St. Thomas Aquinas holds that in addition to the divine knowledge of the eternal word, which does not pertain to Christ's humanity, there are three types of knowledge in Christ's human mind. Beatific knowledge, an immediate vision of the word himself, a vision that infinitely transcends all created images and renders the highest part of his soul blessed at every moment. Then infused supernatural knowledge, knowledge like prophetic knowledge or the evening knowledge of angels, possessed by Christ's soul according to intelligible species proportioned to the human mind, and then acquired or experiential human knowledge gained through his senses and the operation of his intellect in his daily life. Aquinas's account, as you know, was in extremely influential and for centuries was nearly universally accepted by Catholic theologians. In the middle of the 20th century, however, many Catholic scholars increasingly began to disagree with it. Often, a principal objection is that Aquinas portrays Jesus with an unrealistic or even inhuman knowledge during his earthly life. Critics see it as an excessive application of what is sometimes called the principle of perfection, the presupposition that Christ's humanity must have the absolute best of everything. Some Catholic theologians regard it even as theologically dangerous, implicitly monophysite, that's Jean Gallo, or implicitly Nestorian, that's Father Thomas Moynandy, a friend of mine. Others argue that Jesus lives his life in the obscurity of faith and that he only discovers his divine identity and his saving mission through time during the course of his earthly life. And in fact, some even think that as Jesus died on the cross, he suffered from a profound interior darkness bordering on despair, perhaps, but that he remained steadfast in his faith and self-abandonment, confident that the Father would vindicate him in the end. Now, in recent years, a number of scholars have defended Aquinas' traditional position on the beatific vision and Christ's infused supernatural knowledge. I agree with many of their arguments, but I'd like to take a wider angle view of the matter. My claim in this paper is that Aquinas' view is a more refined and elaborated version of the orthodox pro-Nicene theological trajectory that developed in the patristic age. Not derived from philosophical speculations, but emerging from a theological exegesis of scripture. During the course of his career, Aquinas deepened and developed this patristic synthesis as he gained access to the great Christological councils and more of the texts of the fathers and Aquinas sees it as one facet of a much larger account of how we are saved by way of the knowledge of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit brought to us by the incarnate word. So this paper will have two parts. In part one, I will briefly summarize the patristic heritage on Christ's knowledge in relation to our salvation. And then in part two, I will outline two overarching arguments that frame Aquinas' case for Christ's supreme supernatural human knowledge. So, part one, the patristic heritage. With the notable exception of St. Augustine and St. Fulgentius of Ruspe, the Church Fathers generally do not address whether Christ had what we might now call the beatific vision. In fact, beatific vision is not yet a category for thinking about Christ's knowledge. 
Yet, if we look more broadly at the place of Christ's knowledge in the plan of salvation, we do discover a rich patristic teaching forged through a series of major controversies. And viewed in retrospect, we can discern in the orthodox pro-Nicene position a discernible trajectory of development that yielded an increasingly clear teaching on the plenary supernatural knowledge possessed by Christ in his human mind. Though much could be said about, for example, St. Athanasius and the, the immediate response to the so-called Arian crisis, in the interest of time, let us move directly to the controversy over the teaching of Apollinarius of Laodicea in the 360s. He claimed that the Logos took the place of the rational mind in Christ, and so he denied that Jesus had a created human mind. St. Gregory of Nazianzus countered that Christ does have a human mind and that we are saved precisely through this human mind of Christ. As he puts it in his famous letter to Clodonius, letter 101, and Aquinas knew at least fragments of this text, and he knew its arguments through John Damascene's paraphrase. And you'll find this on text A in your handout, just the second sentence I'll read. The unassumed is the unhealed, but what is united with God is also being saved. Having fallen into disorder by sin, man's mind especially needed to be healed, raised up, and illuminated with the knowledge of God in the word's incarnation. In this same period, we find an impressive list of church fathers who reject the claim that Christ was ignorant of the day of judgment. Origen, Ambrose, Augustine, Hilary, Jerome, Cyril of Alexandria, and John Chrysostom. Aquinas knows this, and he quotes many of them. The fifth century debates over Nestorianism and Monophysitism brought further clarifications, even if they didn't directly address Christ's human knowledge. So the Council of Ephesus, in condemning Nestorius, affirmed that there is one person in Christ, the divine word, who is the subject of all that we say about him. While the Council of Chalcedon rejected monophysitism, the view that Christ has a single nature after the union. So I won't read uh, text B on your handout, but it's uh, from the Council of Chalcedon about the uh, natures of Christ. And notice that the principle of perfection, that Christ has a perfect human nature, makes a notable appearance here in the Council of Chalcedon. For subsequent church fathers who desire to be loyal to Ephesus and Chalcedon, these councils call them to affirm that there is one subject in Christ, the Word, who knows according to or in his two distinct natures. Divine knowledge cannot simply be ascribed to Christ's human mind without some further explanation. There needs to be some principle with respect to his humanity that accounts for this knowledge. At the same time, Christ's human knowledge must really be the word's knowledge in his human mind. To treat Christ as ignorant of the Father or of his own divine identity in his human mind would seem to flirt with Nestorianism insofar as it might seem to divide the man Jesus from the divine word. So accordingly, St. Fulgentius of Ruspe in the early 6th century accounts for how Christ's human mind has this 
supernatural human knowledge. From his full reception of the Holy Spirit as man. This is very interesting. This was a discovery of mine in the research for this paper. This is text C. The soul of Christ has in it full knowledge of the whole divinity because the fullness of the whole spirit, totius spiritus, forever remained in him. Fulgentius emphasizes that Christ is the source of the spirit for the whole world. From his fullness we have all received, as John 1.16 says. Fulgentius makes that a kind of key text. In the middle of the 6th century, Christ's human knowledge emerged again as a key point of dispute, this time over the views of the agnoates, from the Greek meaning lack of knowledge. Writing against them, Pope St. Gregory the Great made, an, made explicit a key distinction that I think was already implicitly at work in Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Cyril of Alexandria. This is text D. The only begotten Son incarnate made perfect man for us, knew the day and the hour of judgment in his human nature, but did not know it from his human nature. What he knew, therefore, in his humanity, he did not know from it, because it is by the power of his divinity that God made man knew the day and the hour of judgment. The God-man knows, therefore, the day and the hour of judgment, but precisely because God is man. Gregory then concludes his argument with a quite striking statement. It is perfectly clear that whoever is not an Nestorian cannot in any way be an Agnuate. For how can one who professes that the wisdom of God himself became incarnate ever maintain that there is anything that the wisdom of God does not know? That is, according to Gregory, if you affirm against Nestorius that there is only one person and one subject in Christ, then you will reject the position that Christ's human mind was ignorant. The logic seems to be that because the human nature of Christ is joined to the divinity in the person of the word, Christ's human mind must be filled with supernatural knowledge derived to it from the word. Though it doesn't seem that Aquinas knew this text, St. Gregory here articulates three key points that are important and that do show up in Aquinas' account. First, the incarnate Son is made perfect man for us, that is, for the sake of our salvation. So this so-called principle of perfection, which appears again here, it is not an abstract commitment that Christ would be the best at everything. It's a soteriological principle with a long patristic pedigree, and it applies precisely to Christ's human knowledge. Secondly, while Christ does not know divine things in his humanity from his human mind itself or from its native power, he nonetheless does really know supernatural things in his human mind. And finally, third, the ultimate explanation of this is that Jesus is wisdom incarnate. The purpose of the incarnation is that the divine word would take up our infirmity into his divine strength and that our ignorance would be dispelled by divine wisdom in person. So we can conclude our review of the patristic evidence with the seventh century Monothelite controversy over whether Christ has one will or two. Part of the case for rejecting this heresy 
was the argument that Christ as man knew perfectly the divine plan of salvation so that he could will it perfectly with his human mind. And here I would refer you to text E on your handout from St. Maximus the Confessor, which I will not read, uh, but you can look over. The Monothelite controversy was resolved at the Third Council of Constantinople in 680-681. When Thomas Aquinas got his hands on the records of this council, as uh, Martin Morar has very nicely uh, provided documentation for us uh, with respect to that, he took note of one of the council's lesser-known condemnations, the condemnation of the view that Christ had only a single wisdom pertaining to both his divinity and his humanity. So when Aquinas takes up the issue of Christ's knowledge in the tertiopars of the Summa Theologiae, Constantinople III makes an early and important appearance. Aquinas cites it to show that the Catholic faith professes that Christ has a true human wisdom distinct from his divine wisdom. Okay, so now part two of my paper, Aquinas' patristic synthesis. So let's now turn to Aquinas' own position. Rather than immediately entering into the details of Aquinas' arguments on Christ's human knowledge in the four key questions that treat it in the Summa, that's uh, Tertiopar's questions 9 to 12, I would like to step back and take a wider view of the place of this supernatural knowledge in Aquinas' theology. Specifically, Aquinas' arguments for Christ's perfect human knowledge are set within three larger claims or overarching perspectives. First, Christ is the savior of the world by way of knowledge, that is, as the supreme revealer of God. Second, Christ is the word incarnate, full of grace and truth, who receives the Holy Spirit in full as man. And third, as an instrument of his divinity, Christ's human nature is perfectly adapted for his saving mission, precisely insofar as, as man, we are speaking of a rational creature. Now, the third perspective has received more attention than the other two, in, even in recent uh, works by other scholars, so I will treat it at the end only very briefly. So really, I'll be talking about the first two points. So the first point, Christ as the supreme revealer, the savior by way of knowledge. It's fundamental for Aquinas that man is made to know, and above all, to know the truth about God. So at the beginning of the Summa Theologiae, he writes, the whole salvation of man, which is in God, hangs on knowledge of this truth. Indeed, in the Summa Contra Gentiles, Aquinas makes the audacious claim that knowledge of divine truth is the ultimate end of the universe and the reason why the word of God, divine truth in person, came into the world in the incarnation. This is text F on your handout. The ultimate end of the universe is the good of the intellect, and this is truth. And hence, for the manifestation of the truth... Divine wisdom testifies that having put on flesh, he has come into the world, saying, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world, that I would bear witness to the truth. Now, this might seem surprising to a Thomist, since Aquinas famously holds that the incarnation is a remedy for sin. But in fact, 
Aquinas unites these two perspectives, remedy for sin and perfection of the universe. The incarnation is the remedy for the darkness and ignorance that results from sin. And as that remedy, it therefore aims at the ultimate perfection of the universe after the fall. Aquinas' commentary on John 1, 9, uh, that verse is, uh, he was the true light which enlightens every man. Aquinas, in, in his comment on this verse, spells this out in a striking way, offering three reasons why the divine word became incarnate. And each of them deals with bringing the human race to a perfect knowledge of God. The first two of these are especially pertinent to my argument, so I'll quote them. The first of them is text G on your handout. God willed to become incarnate first because of the perversity of human nature, which, because of its own malice, had been darkened by vices and the obscurity of its own ignorance. Therefore, God came in the flesh so that the darkness might apprehend the light, that is, obtain knowledge of it. In a parallel passage in the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas explains in further detail that the words incarnation is, is fitting as a remedy for the precise nature of the sin of our first parents. And this is text H. For the first man sinned by desiring knowledge, as is clear from the words of the serpent promising man knowledge of good and evil. Thus it was fitting that through the word of true wisdom, man, who by an inordinate appetite for knowledge withdrew from God, would be brought back unto God. So the word becomes incarnate precisely to bring the light of the divine world, of the divine word into the world to heal disorder in man's mind. So now returning to the commentary on John, on John 1.9, Aquinas offers his second reason for the word's incarnation. This is text I. The second reason is that the testimony of the prophets was not enough. For the prophets had come, John the Baptist had come, but they were not able to illuminate sufficiently because he was not the light, quoting the prologue of John about John the Baptist. And so after the prophets and the coming of John, it was necessary that the light itself come and give the world a knowledge of itself. So Aquinas has now added a new aspect. The light of prophecy was not enough to save the world. Rather, the very divine light itself needed to come into the world. As Aquinas explains it, Christ acted for our salvation in a way surpassing what someone with only infused prophetic knowledge could do. Because, as he says elsewhere, a prophet speaks of what he hears, but Christ saw the Father. A prophet has knowledge of God in a dependent way whereas Christ has full possession and, in fact, a kind of dominion over the gifts of prophecy, and so as man can reveal God in a qualitatively different way or mode, you might say. Elsewhere, Aquinas expressly connects the salvation brought by the Incarnation to the word's assumption of a human mind, the assumption of a mind. This is text J. The purpose of the incarnation is the justification of man from sin. For the human soul is not capable of sin nor of justifying grace except through the mind. The mind is the key 
element in both sin and justification. Hence, it was especially necessary for the mind to be assumed. Hence, Damascene says that the word of God assumed a body and an intellectual and rational soul and adds afterwards, the whole was united to the whole that he might bestow salvation on me wholly for what was not assumed is not curable. St. Thomas's reasoning here clearly echoes St. Gregory of Nazianzus and the quotation from John Damascene paraphrases Gregory. The wound of sin primarily affects man's mind. So the remedy of grace is likewise applied through the mind. For this reason, it was especially necessary for the mind to be assumed, Aquinas writes. And he continues, the intellect or mind of man is, as it were, a light lit up by the light of the divine word, and hence, by the presence of the word, the mind of man is perfected. So the presence of the word in the mind of man. The Summa Theologiae's treatment of Christ's knowledge is very explicit that for accomplishing his work of salvation, Christ's human mind needs to be perfect in human supernatural knowledge, and especially by the Beatific Vision. These Summa texts are often read by other commentators as if Aquinas were motivated primarily by the mere desire that Christ be perfect in every way, the principle of perfection. But I hope it's now clear that more is at stake for Aquinas. Above all, of course, he holds for Christ's plenary supernatural knowledge because he thinks it's divinely revealed and the only way to properly interpret certain texts of Holy Scripture. But the arguments about perfection are motivated by a high theological principle. Christ's mind needs to be perfectly full of the knowledge of God because we are saved as we come to know God. And after the fall, it was necessary to bring that full and perfect revelation of the knowledge of God to man's mind through the word incarnate in person. We confess a plenary knowledge in Christ that includes the Beatific vision and infused knowledge because Christ is in no way the beneficiary of revelation like other prophets, but is the agent of revelation and of salvation. So this becomes clear if you read the terse texts of the Summa alongside the more ample arguments that Aquinas offers elsewhere, like, for example, the Compendium of Theology, where he writes, the human nature assumed by the word of God ought not to have been lacking in any perfection whatever, since through it, the whole of human nature was to be restored. And again, since we hold that Christ is the author of man's salvation, we must also hold that such knowledge as befits the author of salvation pertains to the soul of Christ. In other words, those texts make clear that the principle of perfection is really a soteriological principle for Aquinas. Aquinas uses a provocative analogy in speaking about this. This is text K. Among creatures, the man Jesus is like a first mover of salvation by way of knowledge. In every genus, that which is the first mover is not moved by the same species of motion. Now Christ is established as the head of the church and indeed of all men, so that all men would not only receive grace through him, but also so that all would receive from him the doctrine of truth. Hence, he himself says, 
For this I was born, for this I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Since Jesus is the highest and first teacher of divine truth, he cannot be moved to this knowledge in the same way as other creatures. Rather, he needs a uniquely full, created knowledge of God, precisely in order to be the supreme agent of divine revelation, and hence of salvation for all creatures, angels as well as human beings. This is how Aquinas reads John 6, 46. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. That's the gospel text. We hear of the Father from the Son, but Jesus as man sees the Father. This also means for Aquinas that Jesus is the manifestation of the Father's secret interior word. This is text L. Someone manifests his secret through his word, and hence no one can come to a man's secrets except through that man's word. Because, therefore, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God, and no one can come to know the Father except through his word, which is his Son, no one knows the Father except the Son, just as a man wanting to reveal himself by the word of his heart that he proffers by his mouth, clothes that word, as it were, with letters or sounds, so also God, wanting to manifest himself to men, clothes his word conceived from all eternity with flesh in time. And thus, no one can come to a knowledge of the Father except through the Son. So the humanity of Christ is related to the Father's word like a spoken word is related to the thought that it expresses. As vocal sounds bear within them the meaning of the interior word, which they reveal to others, so also, by the logic of this analogy, the humanity of Christ is the manifestation in time of the word himself, and thus also of the Father who speaks him. Now, Aquinas says, even this is not a perfect analogy, because a spoken word is not perfectly identical to the word conceived in the heart. Whereas, quote, the incarnate word is the same as the eternal word, as also the word signified by a voice is the same as the word of the heart. The man Jesus is the Father's word in the flesh, and he assumes this flesh precisely in order to embody in this world the inner truth from the Father, that secret inner word. Aquinas' understanding of Christ's revelation is therefore very different from that of a Gnostic teacher who communicates divine secrets by the words that he speaks. Rather, Aquinas' point goes much beyond this. It's that the word has become flesh. And so the saving revelation wrought by Christ, which is built on his beatific vision and his perfect infused supernatural knowledge, this saving revelation is accomplished not only by Christ's words, but in all of his actions and in all of his sufferings. So he is the very embodiment of the word of God. And so everything about his life and his very humanity itself is revelatory and salvific. 
as Aquinas puts it, in the incarnation, quote, the wisdom of God clothed in fleshly members, both taught that wisdom by his words and manifested it by his actions. Now, I think this is particularly true regarding Christ's passion and death, because here we find the greatest possible manifestation of God's love for us, the highest and very mysterious teaching of wisdom, and in a way, the deeply mysterious revelation of how God responds to evil and suffering. Indeed, for Aquinas, it's extremely important that Christ have the beatific vision as he suffers on the cross, so that he would know every sinner, every sin, so as to take the weight of every sin upon himself. And he knows the terrible burden of sin perfectly, precisely because he has the beatific vision, by which he knows who God is, and therefore what sinners are really losing when they forsake him. So in sum, the words incarnation is the heart of the entire dispensatio, the dispensation of salvation, because it is through him and through his manifestation of the Father to us that we are brought back to the Father. And according to Aquinas' logic, this requires that Jesus as man have the fullest knowledge of God possible to a creature. Okay, so now the second point. Uh, Christ is full of grace and truth. Jesus, according to Aquinas, receives the Holy Spirit in full, and thus, as St. John's prologue says, he is full of grace and truth. On this point, Aquinas' reflections have an even more marked Trinitarian dimension. And what is more, they show not only why Christ must have this supernatural knowledge, but also how he receives it and how he gives us a saving share in it. This emerges from Aquinas' synthesis of the Church Fathers, especially the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon. Read together, they teach that Christ is one person with two distinct natures. So Aquinas places this anti-Nestorian and anti-Monophysite profession of faith at the heart of his, of his explanation of Christ's beatific vision. And this is text M, which, which I will not read, uh, but you can review. According to Aquinas, we cannot say that Christ has the beatific vision purely and simply because his soul is united to the word in the hypostatic union. That union is with respect to being, not with respect to the operation or, or attributes of Christ's humanity. So another principle besides the hypostatic union is needed, and as I've explained uh, at length elsewhere, this is Christ's habitual grace, which supernaturally elevates and perfects his humanity in a human way by a human participation in the divine nature. And so you'd find this in text N, which also I will uh, not read for you. This habitual grace of Christ flows out from the hypostatic union as a necessary consequence of it. It's like a proper accident. Aquinas calls it, uh, he says it's like splendor flowing from the sun. And there is a Trinitarian reason why 
it has this, this feature as a proper accident of the hypostatic union. The divine persons are never separated. So when the word is sent visibly in the flesh and begins to exist as man by hypostatic union, the Holy Spirit is also sent invisibly to his humanity in which the Spirit dwells not by hypostatic union, but according to habitual grace. Christ as man receives grace without measure, Aquinas writes, and therefore he receives the Holy Spirit without measure. On this point, Aquinas quotes the Glossa Ordinaria with approval. Christ receives totum spiritum, the whole spirit, the Holy Spirit in his entirety. Quote, God gives the spirit to men by measure, but to the son without measure. He gives his entire spirit, totum spiritum suum, to the incarnate son, not in a particular fashion, nor by subdivision, but universally and generally. The resemblance of this text to the argument of St. Fulgentius mentioned above is remarkable. It seems likely to me anyway that Fulgentius may be the Gloss's unnamed source. Like Fulgentius, St. Thomas argues that if Christ has the Spirit in full and without measure, then his mind must be filled with the highest supernatural knowledge possible to a human intellect, including beatific vision and supreme infused knowledge. Quote, because Christ has the Spirit without measure, it belongs to him to know all things in the word. This is also, of course, directly linked to Christ's capital grace, by which Jesus is the source of every grace and every revelation given to the world. Another quotation, because he received the gifts of the Spirit without measure, he has the power of pouring them out without measure, Aquinas says. And this echoes the theme that we discussed in uh, just a, a few minutes ago about Christ as the supreme revealer and the perfect savior. So what then is the role of the divine word in Christ's beatific vision? In fact, Aquinas speaks of this often, more frequently, than he speaks about the Holy Spirit's role. And this is text O. I'll skip the first sentence. Now the soul of Christ, since it is united to the word in person, is more closely joined to the word of God than any other creature. Hence, it more fully receives the light in which God is seen by the word himself than any other creature. And therefore, more perfectly than the rest of creatures, it sees the first truth itself, which is the essence of God. Hence it is written, and we saw his glory, the glory as it were, the only begotten of the Father, full not only of grace, but also of truth. The ultimate root of Christ's beatific vision is the utterly unique closeness of his human soul to the word by hypostatic union. But, of course, Christ's human mind still does need a special light to see the divinity. That's the light of glory, the lumen gloriae, which is an aspect of Christ's grace. Now, this text that I've just looked at uh, may help diffuse an objection that Father Thomas Wynandy has posed to Christ's beatific vision. And it gives us a, an insight into uh, Aquinas' understanding of the incarnation of the word and the personal mode that then characterizes all of Christ's humanity. So Aquinas says in that text, the text that we just read, 
that Christ's soul receives more fully than any other creatures, quote, the light in which God is seen by the word himself. Now, this is an extraordinary phrase. The highest exemplar of the beatific vision is the divine word's own divine vision or divine knowledge of God. The implication seems to be that the soul of Christ receives a creaturely participation, not only in the self-knowledge of God conceived generally, but more specifically in the knowledge of God as the word possesses it, or is it. Of course, for Aquinas, the word's divine knowledge is identical to the Father's and the Spirit's in every respect but one, it has a filial mode. The word is God from God. He is from the Father. And thus the word's divine knowledge of the divine essence is also characterized by this mode. The, the word perfectly knows the Father and thus knows himself as from the Father. And likewise, he knows the Spirit as from the Father and the Son. These are just the relational modes of the one divine knowledge, you might say. This means that when Aquinas says that Christ's human soul receives the beatific vision of the divine essence, he is not referring to some kind of impersonal knowledge of God. That's what Father Wynandy fears. Rather, Aquinas is saying that Christ's soul sees God in his human intellect, but according to the very filial mode by which the Son sees the Father. And this is in harmony with uh, a long discussion that I've treated elsewhere, that Aquinas thinks that Christ's humanity is characterized in every way by a filial mode of being from the Father. So the mind of Christ, as the human mind of the Word, knows the Father as the incarnate Son knows the Father. So by way of conclusion, uh, two final remarks. I mentioned that there is a third overarching argument for Christ's supernatural human knowledge in Aquinas. And so let me just say a brief word about that. For St. Thomas, Jesus needs this knowledge if he is to be the perfect human instrument of the divine word. So when a king selects a servant for an important mission, he does not choose a servant ignorant of his purposes or with a divided loyalty, a divided heart. So likewise, the divine word assumes a human nature with an intellect endowed with a perfect knowledge of God and God's plan of salvation and a will perfectly conformed to God and to that plan. So this does not mean that the mind of Jesus is like that of a space alien in a science fiction movie or an infinite supercomputer with data on every conceivable fact. Rather, Aquinas explains Christ's beatific vision as a simple knowledge of what is supremely intelligible in itself. And he draws an analogy, of, he explicitly draws an analogy to a very intelligent person who is given to know a core principle in some field of knowledge. So people with lesser intellectual lights need all of the consequences of a principle to be spelled out for them, one by one, explained. But someone with a more powerful intellectual light understands all at once 
all of the consequences that flow from the principle. So a person like that does not have to work out laboriously the answer to further questions. He or she immediately gets it because he understands the principle deeply. So Aquinas says Christ's mind is like this as it sees the divine essence. Christ as man sees all things that he himself as the divine word has done and will do as God. And of course, God's causality extends to all that will be. So Christ's knowledge also grasps this, but he grasps it in a simple way. Finally, I hope it's now clear that Christ's plenary supernatural human knowledge is not a minor detail in Aquinas' Christology or for that matter, in his global account of the Christian faith. In, indeed, this is true also for many of the church fathers who are the sources of Aquinas' view. From Aquinas' perspective, if you deny that Jesus had this knowledge as man, then you are not just tweaking the system or removing something inessential. You are, in fact, undermining a central pillar. So you will need, then, to articulate quite a different account of the economy of salvation and of the purposes of the incarnation. But, of course, that is not the picture that Aquinas and many of the fathers draw. Uh, rather, for them, Christ as man is the perfect human embodiment, including in his human mind and in his human knowledge of the divine word of the Father. And so he rightly says of the Father, I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. Thank you. <laughs>